0: The seek podcast we are so glad you're here i'm aaron scanlon your host for this season each week we're sharing content that dives into the heart of the gospel who god is who we are and what it means to live in relationship with him we're excited to walk with you as you encounter the lord good morning and welcome to our first live impact session of seek 21 I'm down here in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona at Mary College at ASU. And it is my, it's my great pleasure to introduce to us our first speaker. He, in 2009, was inaugurated as the sixth president of the University of Mary. And at the age of 34, he became the youngest university or college president in the United States. He holds an impressive educational pedigree from institutions like UT Austin, Harvard, the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business, and the Gregorian and Lateran universities in Rome. And this morning, we're really lucky to have him present to us on the conversion that happens through our minds. But most importantly, in 2002, he was ordained a priest for the Diocese of Bismarck, North Dakota. Please help me in welcoming to the stage, Monsignor James Shea.
1: What a joy to be here at seat 21 at this watch party at Mary College at ASU, where the University of Mary offers Catholic studies for students of Arizona State the nation's largest public university, and how terrific to be connected by live stream with watch parties of college students all over the nation, bound together by our faith in Jesus Christ and our love for his church. Let's call on God the Father to grant us the grace of true conversion. All of us here went up to see the Grand Canyon Thursday and then joined the Mexican food themed C21 watch party at Northern Arizona State University. Up at NAU, they had this beautiful prayer of St. Francis of Assisi on the wall. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. O most high and glorious God, cast your light into the darkness of my heart. Give me right faith, firm hope, perfect charity, and profound humility with wisdom and perception, O Lord that I may do what is truly your holy will. Let your light within me burn, shining forth in perfect charity. Amen. Well, I've got great news, but it begins with bad news. That's the Christian way, isn't it? We don't know the deep relief of being saved, what freedom really tastes like until it really sinks in how utterly lost we are without Christ, how devastating and desperate it is to be cut off from God. The bad news is that what we're trying isn't working. Most of us are just tinkering with our spiritual lives. We try to do better. We attend to religious duties. We make resolutions and we try to keep them. We attempt prayer more more fervently, more frequently. But why does it feel like we're just adding one more thing to our overcrowded lives? Our efforts to live for Christ are so fervent and so frantic. But we step back and it's like we've done nothing because nothing has been done to us. Day passes day. Month passes month. Year passes, year we've been alive the whole time, but we've never lived. We sense that something is missing, that we should be different from how we are. But we feel powerless to achieve it. We've done nothing because nothing has been done to us. We're trying to do better. At the deepest part of us, we don't want to be just better. We want to be transformed. We don't want to be somehow less dingy. We want to become incandescent, shining from the inside out. Our problem is a kind of deep-seated mediocrity, and we can't stand it. We panic when people like Curtis Martin tell us we're made for more. We already know that, but we don't know how to get there. And it's partly because we haven't been paying attention. I just did an interview with Curtis over at primematters.com where I remembered with him the first time he visited our campus at the University of Mary, even before we started to host new staff training there. He said to a crowd of thousands gathered in our our activity center, these words, words that sent shivers down my spine. He said the vast majority of Catholics are in a loveless marriage with God. They're in covenant with him because of baptism and confirmation, but they experience our faith to be a weight to be carried rather than a relationship of tender, mutual love. It reminded me of Chesterton. He said, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. But we're so lukewarm, we're resentful and anxious and bored. And there's a deep pain and sadness around this question for us the tragedy of our mediocrity. We somehow believe the voice of the orphan spirit, Sister Bethany Madonna spoke of so stirringly, not just now, but back at SEEK 2017. The voice of the orphan spirit says, you are all alone. We're supposed to be children of the promise, but we think like we're orphans. A dear friend of mine was doing some ministry work at a rural church in Cannonball, North Dakota, on the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. It's one of the poorest places in America, a little town of about 800 with a per capita income of about $5,700 a year. The church has no pews, only rough hewn wooden benches. And one afternoon, a bunch of little boys were running around in the church, jumping wildly from bench to bench. My friends started to try to get them to stop running and jumping in church And then he saw something, the most terrible thing. One of the kids lost his footing and slammed head first into the raw concrete floor. It was a devastating fall with a thump of the kind that makes your stomach churn. He rushed over to the boy, bracing himself for the inevitable scream and sobbing. But to his wonderment, the child lay there so still, not moving but with unspeakable pain in his eyes. My friend realized that this little boy who had the noble blood of Lakota warriors running through his veins, but who also came from a background of horrific abuse and neglect, this little boy didn't cry because he had never had anyone to hear him cry. Somewhere deep down, he didn't believe he had anyone to hear him cry. We we, all of us know something of that interior pain and aloneness in our efforts in the spiritual life. We're trying to get our lives together so that God can be pleased with us, but we're so darn weak and mediocre. And until we get our act together so we can show ourselves to him, we're so alone and we feel like we're undergoing our lives rather than living them. No, what we're trying isn't working. That's the bad news. The great news is that it's not supposed to work, not that way. Our basic problem is not that we're characterized by our faults, what a relief, but that we're characterized by a great refusal that blocks our conversion. Our essential problem is not one of the will or the passions. It's not that we're unwilling to convert or not willing enough or that our passions are too disordered. The conversion we need is not behavior modification therapy. God doesn't want, first of all, people who do certain things and avoid other things. Instead, he desires a certain kind of person, a deeper kind of conversion. Not the will, first of all. Not the passions, first of all. Not our emotions, first of all. Not our behavior, first of all. This is great news, it's great news. We obsess about our failures and wretchedness in these very parts of our lives. They make us feel like we're in quicksand. But what if they're not the real problem? What if the final healing of all those broken parts of us could find its true beginning in a deeper kind of healing, that fundamental transformation for which we long? Well, it can. It starts with our minds. We have allowed our minds, our intellects, which are the highest of our powers, as human persons, to be obscured and darkened about the meaning and purpose of our lives. We need deeper conversion, deeper healing, not so much to do what Jesus did, to behave as Jesus behaved, but to think and relate as Jesus thought and related. Put on the mind of Christ, St. Paul thundered to the Philippians, To the Romans, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Oh, yeah. Well, St. Paul was a brainiac. I like Jesus, meek and mild, aimlessly wandering around the countryside. More loving, less thinking. More action, less words. Are you crazy? Jesus was full of words. He was the word. When he breaks into the scene of his public ministry, he came as a teacher, one who illuminates our minds, also as a healer, also as an exorcist, but first of all, a teacher. That's what his disciples called him, teacher. That's what Mary Magdalene cried out from the depths of her being on that first Easter morning, when she realized he was alive and standing there right in front of her. Teacher, she cried. Our gospel reading at mass this very day ends with these words. His heart was moved with pity for the crowds and he taught them many things. At the root of our troubles and our suffering is a deep misunderstanding, a powerful clouding of the mind. St. John opens his gospel with this claim. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. Jesus, as the light of the world, is an image especially associated with our minds, the highest and noblest part of us. Jesus comes to bring light to a world of darkness, to help us see what we couldn't see, to teach us what we couldn't understand. He comes to enlighten the darkened mind. The scriptures make it clear that the essence of what it means to be converted to Christ is to undergo a fundamental change of mind from a state of darkness and obscurity to truth and light. To put off the old nature of sin is to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. To put off conformity with this world is to be transformed by the renewal of our minds We're confused about this because so much of modern religion is fixated upon emotion and personal experience. Emotional experience has a part to play in the life of the disciple, but it is nowhere close to the heart of the matter. To be converted for the New Testament is largely to be enlightened in mind. Faith faith is the healing of our intellect. But what about our will? Isn't the heart of Christianity that we should act rightly, that we should be morally upright people? Isn't the essence of being a Christian to be a good person? Yes, partly. But our mind and our will are intimately connected, and one is higher than the other. When we see rightly with our mind, we are oriented to do the good by our will. If we act wrongly with our will, our minds become darkened and we lose proper sight. We lose our grasp on true knowledge, on the teaching of the master. It is impressive. It's so impressive to see how often the New Testament speaks of conversion in terms of what it calls knowledge. To become a Christian is to be renewed in mind. St. Paul prays that the Ephesians attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That the Colossians will lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That the love of the Philippians may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment and that Timothy will realize that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. St. Peter prays that grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And Jesus, Jesus speaks of his mission as one of bearing witness to the truth. Our mind, our intellect is the faculty by which we grow in knowledge and embrace what is true. The intellect is our highest, most godlike faculty, and therefore the one most involved in the process of becoming fully human. It is the key to deep conversion. You might say, hey, but when St. Paul talks about knowing God, when he talks about that knowledge, he isn't referring to just reading books about him. He means personal knowledge, of the kind that comes in the context of a relationship of love and friendship. Yes, that's right. To know God for the saints does mean knowing certain things about him, such as his nature, his power, his character, his aims for humanity, and his promises to us and his expectations from us. But it goes much further. It involves knowing God himself, becoming united to him, being penetrated by his life such that his life becomes our life. Let's stop, everybody. Let's stop it. (laughs) Let's stop being confused. Our faith is about that kind of knowledge. Our life of faith is not first about being a good person. It's about being in communion. Our life of faith is not, first of all, about being a good person It's about being in communion. C.S. Lewis once asked a child who God was. And the child responded, God is the kind of person who's always looking down to see if anyone is having any fun so he can stop them. This is the God of the loveless marriage, the God of the heavy thumbs. The sensation that you are being watched, always measured always found wanting is like death to love or even to the fundamental trust that should characterize our relationships with other people, with our parents, with our employers. Our one task in this life, friends, our one task is the healing of our minds to allow the eyes of our hearts to be healed so that we can see God. That healing, that one task is what gets us ready for heaven. And we can't do it on our own. We need grace to transform us. We need deep conversion. So here we go with deep conversion. Conversion always and everywhere is the turning away from something and the turning towards something else. Here we're talking about the conversion of our minds from an essentially worldly or secular vision that we absorb from the fallen world all around us towards a Christian vision of reality, a transformational grasp of the truth, a confidence that allows us to say these words at the Savior's command and formed by divine teaching. Then this deep conversion allows us to live out the consequences of that reality and that truth in our lives in joyful, suffering, freedom. It is almost the definition of Christian conversion to call it the process by which a person comes alive to the invisible world with all its ramifications. This new vision, this conversion of mind comes about in large part within that astonishing faculty of our intellect, the imagination. J.R.R. R. Tolkien knew this. C.S. Lewis knew this. St. Ignatius and St. Francis and St. Augustine before them knew this. Jesus knew this, and it shaped the whole way he taught. Everybody, what do you think a parable is for? Do we know it, brothers and sisters? Do we nourish our imaginations on the wonder and the beauty of the great tradition? Do we marinate our minds in the scriptures so to drive home this point we put up a video over at prime matters let's take a look every society and individual views the world through a moral and spiritual imaginative vision this vision shapes not only our ideas of good manners politics morality and success but even shapes our actions and thus our character To call this vision imaginative is not to say that it is make-believe. Instead, it refers to the idea that each human person possesses the astonishing ability to carry an entire world in our minds. We carry memories of the past and thoughts about the future alongside our experience of the present moment. And we can consider realities that are not immediately present or visible to us. This allows us to understand our lives as part of a larger narrative. Christianity is not merely an add-on to an otherwise secular vision of the world. Christianity forms the basis of a unique imaginative vision, enabling Christians to see the whole world in a coherent, interconnected way. As Christians, then, a key aspect of conversion is to attempt to see the world differently in a fresh way, according to the imaginative vision given us by God. The modern secular vision begins with the view that what is real is only what is available to the senses. Immaterial things just don't exist. This means that the world we see is all there is, so it's all that matters. Nothing important is beyond it. The secular narrative starts with random atoms and chaotic forces that by an extraordinary set of unlikely accidents have given rise to the complexities of life and culminated with self-conscious creatures. Us. We are on an upward path of development and progress and the time has come when this random process needs to be seized by a humanity come of age. There is no limit to what we might become. The stars await. Meanwhile, fulfilling this destiny requires absolute freedom for self-creation. Anything that gets in the way of our individual autonomy is unjust and oppressive, keeping us from our personal dignity and corporate destiny. This means that God especially needs to be kept to the margins. Admitting the existence and activity of God would impose rules and purposes that we did not create. What about the Catholic imaginative vision? At the core of the Catholic imaginative vision is the conviction that we have been created by God with a profound purpose and born into a reality that is both visible and invisible. And the world we cannot see is incomparably more real, more lasting, more beautiful, and larger than the world we can see. Our ultimate purpose is tied up with that invisible world. Christians further hold that there is a great epic drama being enacted around us and within us. A battle between good and evil in both the visible and invisible world. Every person has a role to play in this unfolding drama. Each of us is engaged in a great cosmic story, caught between the interplay of good and evil, triumph and failure, heroes and villains. The ultimate consequences of this story are of eternal significance. According to the Christian narrative, Humanity has been created for a magnificent destiny, life forever in the presence of God. But we have dealt ourselves a mortal wound by turning away from God, the terrible consequences of which are all around us. But in an act of inestimable generosity, God entered the visible world, became one of us and died for us, thereby paying the price for our defiance. This action of God and our participation with it is at the heart of human history and it is at the heart of each of our personal stories. It is easy to see that these two visions of humanity and its destiny are at odds. They cannot both be true. If the Christian imaginative vision is true, then coming to see the world in this new, fresh way is not just a matter of preference. It is of urgent importance. So how do we open ourselves to this deep conversion? How do we come to see the world in this fresh new way? Well, focused Bible studies are an excellent place to start. Father Mike Schmitz has the most popular podcast in the world right now, The Bible in a Year. Subscribe to it. Or at the end of the video, just now you saw a teaser for the Christian mythic narrative the deep history of the world on Prime Matters. That's a five-hour audio project about eight minutes in eight-minute segments that's meant to fire the imagination in just this way in the epic, sweeping narrative. Speaking of epic, the lives of the saints, the writings of Chesterton or Willa Cather or Flannery O'Connor or Hilaire Belloc are all pulsating with this vision. Read them and read the Gospels. Read the Gospels and memorize every word he said. The time has come for us as missionary disciples to recover the intellectual vitality that was characteristic of the church in her early centuries. They were swept away by the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. It permeated, it permeated their minds and they couldn't stop talking about it no matter what the torture or the suffering they faced was. This intellectual life awakens this new vision and it grounds our faith. And it isn't primarily a matter of college degrees. Yes, by all means, sign up for a grad program at the Augustine Institute or Catholic U or Divine Mercy or at the University of Mary. Plunge yourself into disciplined study, but it only sustains this deep conversion if we're not talking about academic method but, with an encou- but about an encounter with truth that will set you free. Education, in this sense, is the renewal of our imagination. And when we're captivated by truth, when the romance comes back into our faith, when we dare to believe that the whole thing is true, then our moral failings and our disordered passions begin to lose their grip on us. We let go of of the arrogant illusion that our smallness and sin is a meaningful limitation on the love of God, that our, that our pathetic daily rebellion can pose a challenge to the reckless raging fury, that potent overwhelming joy, that beauty ever ancient, ever new, which one fine day, not so long ago, for reasons he is sure of chose that we should exist, you, me. Brothers and sisters, let me bring these reflections to a close by noting that the measure of all this, the renewal of our minds, is our imaginations, the healing of our intellects. The measure of all of it is the cross of Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ is the most significant event that has ever happened, but it is much more. It is the precise moment when the human race was set free from our ancient enemies, but it is much more. It is more because it is the interpretive key to all of life. To be converted of mind, sees something in the cross, The person converted in mind sees something in the cross that no one else can see. It is the lens given to believers through which we understand everything that happens around us and to us. It is the reality that measures the true value of everything we can see. The cross of Christ is the measure of the world and of our lives. Do we want to understand something about what's happening around us? Look at the cross. Do we wonder what God is doing to us personally, right now? Examine our lives in the light of the cross. Do we want to know what is important and what is superfluous? Bring it all into the presence of the cross and allow it to sift our hearts and our minds. There's a reason why we put the cross everywhere, in our churches, in our homes, our classrooms, and even our jewelry why we trace the cross upon ourselves so constantly in making the sign of the cross. Because the shadow of the cross brings light and understanding to our fallen condition and shows us who we are and what we should expect. The cross means suffering and humiliation in this life. And without this deep conversion of our minds, we wouldn't be able to bear it we will always want to compromise in the stupid hope that it's enough to be a good person. But beware of that, there are dragons around that corner. St. Paul tells the Corinthians that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's almost a dogma of the modern secular vision that the point of life is to avoid suffering at every cost, and in every way, and this actually fills modern life with anxiety and dread. When suffering comes as it always does, then we're left bewildered and we lash out in resentment or turn in upon ourselves in self-pity, but this is a fundamentally anti-Christian way of life because the very point of the Christian life is to be crucified Our question is not how to avoid the cross, but what we do when we get there. This realization and acceptance, the fruit of genuine faith and the desire to be with Jesus and for him to be with us, this realization and acceptance brings joy, tenderness. We're being told in a hundred ways that we shouldn't suffer. By avoiding all suffering, we can save our lives. But avoiding all suffering is an impossible task. We actually have a smaller task. We should, ab- we should avoid being crucified on the wrong cross, the cross not chosen for us, the cross of our own fear and self-concern and isolation or bitterness. How do we know which cross is for us? How do we, with a mind healed of darkness, converted to a true imaginative vision. How do we discern the cross that's meant for us? Our true cross is known to us because Mary is standing there. With the eyes of faith, we see her gentle but sturdy figure through the tears and the sweat and the blood of our lives. She is the mother of mercy who teaches us how to receive love in the midst of suffering so that we don't waste our suffering, but rather that our suffering, in the strange words of St. Paul, in the mystery of the incarnation, can make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What turned out to be one of the greatest blessings of my life was a terrible, bitter cross I was given my freshman year of college. I'm the oldest of eight children, And on March 1st of my freshman year, my youngest brother, Matthew, was killed in a farm accident. He was almost five years old. My father was moving hay and my little brother was sledding and he went right under the heavy back wheel of the tractor. Matthew was the light of my life. He was a fountain of affection in my final years of high school. After mass on Sundays, we would lay in the sun under the picture window and I would toss him into the air until neither of us could breathe anymore. When I left the farm, it was no problem to say goodbye to the cows, but it was really hard to say goodbye to him. And when I went off to college, mom said that when he heard that I might be coming home, Matthew would stand at the picture window and he would repeat my name for hours. When he died, I was devastated but something happened that made all the difference for me in my grief suddenly the blessed mother showed up in my life as never before i can't describe to you the tenderness and reassurance she brought to my pain and the pain of my family how she guarded my heart from anger and from the loss of faith and then one night the following summer i sensed her leading me to adoration Mary always, always brings us to Jesus. And I knelt there before the Eucharist. And in that moment, a realization washed over me. I believed my brother was with the Lord. And of course, I believed the Lord was truly present there in front of me, close to me in the Eucharist. And so the closest I could ever be to Matthew, whom I missed so much, was to be with the Lord in this way. He didn't wait for me at the window anymore. He waited within the love of the monstrance, within the life of the Holy Trinity. Then suddenly that scene from Second Samuel chapter 12 came to mind when King David's son dies. Do you remember? David had been mourning and fasting and weeping while his child was dying. But when he died, David changed his clothes and had something to eat. When his servants asked about this, he he said, while my son was still alive, I fasted and wept, hoping he would live. But now he said, why should I fast? Can I bring him back? No, he will not return to me. I must go to him. No, he will not return to me. I must go to him. The sadness lifted in the most beautiful and achingly wonderful way. The hurt was gone, the pain. And I just missed my brother and wanted to be with him. And I knew that that was by coming to be one day with Jesus. Everyone, notice the power of faith, how the mind can be renewed. The insight about the Lord's physical closeness to me and my brother, it wasn't enough. Insights are a dime a dozen. In the spiritual life but then that insight came blazing to life as a transformative truth when it was touched by God's holy word my whole life then was given direction and healing in that prayer and I was set upon a path I shall go to him tonight in what is always the high point of seek each of you will be there where I was with the Lord in adoration. If what you're doing isn't working, if your relationship with God is a loveless burden, if you feel yourself overwhelmed by resentment or anxiety or boredom, if there is some deep pain that you've just been unable to relate to him, pray for the renewal of your mind. Ask him for the gift of deep conversion. Exercise your faith and be generous in your faith and dare to believe that it's all true and then get ready for the cross and get ready for the adventure of your life. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Monsignor. Um, Especially for the story at the end, I was, very moved by that. Um, the thing that really struck me was when you said, Jesus comes to enlighten our darkened minds. We're so lucky to have Monsignor on our board of directors for Focus. We're lucky to have him as a priest. We're just lucky to have him here speak to us this morning. We also want to thank our sponsor for this impact session, which was the Knights of Columbus. So thank you. Thanks for listening, friends. To hear more content from speakers like this, join us for SEEK 23 in St. Louis, January the 2nd through the 6th. Visit seek.focus.org to learn more.